What makes you angry is not what's happened to you, but what you tell yourself about what's happened to you. What makes you angry is not what you've lost, but what you say to yourself that means. See, your anger comes from what you believe, not from what people are doing to you. You've got to know that. Whenever you get angry, say, what is this big thing that's so important to me that I'm defending? Almost immediately, if you do this analysis, you'll immediately be embarrassed because almost many, many times, the thing you're defending is your ego, your pride, your self-esteem. Today on the Songtime Broadcast, we'll continue our study in the book of Proverbs, a proverb a day in May. Today, we're exploring the theme of anger as we hear from Timothy Keller. But first, we'll continue our conversation with Matt Rhodes as we talk about how to really do missions, how to actually get down into the dirt and do the hard work because there's no shortcut to success. Stay tuned for all of that as we continue with our Proverb a Day in May and our discernment of missions. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. This week, we've been talking a little bit about our ministry of missions, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our guest this week is Matt Rhodes, who's written a book called No Shortcut to Success. It's a manifesto for modern missions. And this is a subject that I think is really crucial because we're always looking for shortcuts, aren't we? We're always trying to find ways to to get to the prize without going through all of the steps, all of the process. And that's a subject we're actually going to be looking into a little bit more uh, next month as we have a new series. I'm not going to announce it just yet, but uh, stay tuned for us for that coming up in uh, the month of June. But talking about no shortcut to success. Uh, Matt, you're probably familiar with everything that happens in in Christian publishing. You are a missionary overseas. You're on the front lines, but when you come back to the States, you probably see all of the headlines and all of the books that are published on three easy ways to get to point A, you know, 20, you know, ideas that can really simplify this part of your life or five steps to a better version of you. So I'm curious, as someone who is a missionary overseas, is actually doing the work, the hard work of advancing the kingdom of God, how do you respond when you see all of these sort of, uh, this manual for shortcuts to spirituality? You know, I I, I probably don't interact with it too much back in the States. Um, I think there's always going to be a spectrum of literature out there, both within the Christian world and within the wider world. To me, where 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 it probably bothers me most is when I feel it's it's influencing people who would have been operating wisely otherwise. But you know, if somebody wants to to sell sort of a, a self help or a you know three quick steps to success, um, to me that it, it's probably not going to damage soil for the gospel. It might it might even be almost irrelevant to what the gospel is going to do in that person's life. Mm. Uh, I have a very small church here on Cape Cod in, a, in, in beautiful New England, and uh, where many of the churches really struggle to reach young people, our church has really been seeing a, a huge influx of young families starting to attend a church. It's still a very small church. It's very embedded in the community. And a lot of my pastor friends are asking me, what am I doing? You know, what are the things that you're doing differently than what I'm doing? And how can I uh, see the same results? And I don't even know how to quantify it. I mean, obviously, I think the last two years I've been in a honeymoon period and and things have been just happening uh, organically on their own. But uh, while there are some things that I think we could do differently, ultimately, by looking at the next shiny thing, the next exciting thing, we're really failing to speak into our own context, aren't we? 
Yeah, I, I have a colleague who, who calls this shiny new object syndrome. And there is a sense that these things are just in the hand of God. Um, now, I, I, I appreciate your your pastor colleague's desire to learn because mm-hmm. in many cases there may be things that they're that they're doing that that could be done a lot better. Um, I, I've seen churches on the West Coast, you know, try to uh, to respond to concerns from the LGBTQ community, and I, I've often been you know surprised both by the sincerity of their response and as as a person who has friends in those communities um, just by how entirely unconvincing and uninformed their these churches responses would be they're they're really trying they just don't know what to say hmm. it does seem like the world that we're living in there is no uh, singular approach anymore uh, where we used to live in societies without a lot of diversity that you could kind of just have a tailored message for your particular audience and really make some inroads. But but now there's such a pluralistic mindset in the world that we have to be a little more attentive. Uh, your book is a manifesto for modern missions, and that kind of implies that we're living in a completely different setting than, than we were even 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I don't know that overseas so much we are, but mm-hmm. I think that the, the approaches that we're taking as a missions community are very, very different. And part of actually what I'm what I'm hoping to do is for modern missionaries to take a step back in history and say, you know, it was really great that for China Inland Mission that people studied language for six to eight hours a day until they could preach fluently. That was a great thing. And that isn't, you know, putting off evangelism unnecessarily. It's getting trained before you start doing your job. Mm-hmm. It's it's not so much that you're choosing not to evangelize at that point. It's that you can't yet. You can say things, you know, in my language learning years, in my early years, I could say God is big. I could say, you know, Jesus is nice. Um, but but those aren't the kind of types of things that, that our people are going to hear and work through. Mm-hmm. I think within, again, our context here in New England, the idea you mentioned, uh, China Inland Missions, you know, going there and and building a church where you have to have a foreign passport to enter. Uh, it, it, it's a completely different mindset, but it's something similar we're seeing here in the United States where uh, many of the, the churches that are growing and growing rapidly here in New England are, are mainly populated by uh, outsiders. They're populated by transplants from outside of New England. I think we've lost our own mindset of how to reach New Englanders with the gospel because uh, we're building churches and we're seeing this rapid growth, but no one's asking the right questions. Are we actually reaching New Englanders with the gospel, or are we simply just building large buildings and filling them with people from out of state? Right. I think those are those are fascinating questions to ask. So the, a corresponding situation would be that where where my where my wife and I work, there are Christians from southern tribes in our town. Now. They, and they, they have churches, they meet publicly in buildings, and they don't speak the same language as the Muslim tribes that we're working with. And there's a lot of antipathy between the tribes. And so uh, often what happens is pastors will come from the south of the country. Um, they're actually sent by their denomination as missionaries. They reach out to the southerners, but they, they don't learn the languages or interact or set up their churches in ways that can effectively reach the northerners. And so we do have kind of a a fragmentation of society that we really have to address. 
We've been talking with Matt Rhodes, who is the author of No Shortcut to Success, a manifesto for modern missions. You can find out more information about his book by giving us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. While we've been talking about missions, in particular, we were discussing the, the sense that there is no shortcut to missions success. We have to actually do the work ourselves. We must consider especially New England. Um, Matt is a missionary in a very hard-to-reach area, but we are as well here in New England. The challenge of communicating to our faith, to, not to people who have never heard about it before or who have uh, only heard about it in a, in a negative light, but people who have heard it time and time again in their hearts have become callous. We are called to continue to preach the gospel, to communicate it. And I firmly believe that to do that, we must become those who are, are constantly exuding the Holy Spirit and the, the, the gospel message. It should be so prevalent in our, in our lives that it rubs off on people when we get close to them. We're to be salt and we're to be light, constantly shining the countenance of the glory of God. And this book is a great resource. I really believe that. So if you want to find out more information about Matt Rhodes and his book, No Shortcut to Success, give us a call, 508 362 7070. Well, today we're continuing our series, A Proverb a Day in May, as we are exploring this week the the prominent theme of anger in the book of Proverbs. In this message, Timothy Keller explains to us why we struggle with anger, what, what is the problem with it, and why it becomes a problem for us when it's not a problem for God, who is angry in, in his righteousness. He is angry, and yet his anger is righteous in all of its ways. Why do we fall short of that? Well, today we'll discover that a little bit more as we continue our series, A Proverb A Day in May. Anger is at the bottom of so many of our problems in this world, so many of your psychological problems, and you don't deny, you deny it because you don't admit it because it's the one motion that most leads to denial. And it leads to wars, and it leads to oppression, and it leads to so much of the misery in this world. How do we heal it? That's the fourth point. How do we heal it? All right, three things you have to do. The first thing you have to do is admit it. All of the Proverbs that say a wise man or woman is not no anger or blow anger, but slow anger. Well, the, the key to being angry well, that's what slow anger is. Being angry smart, being angry and using your anger well. Being angry well is you have to be, you have to own your anger, you have to admit your anger, you have to be in touch with your anger, you have to know how angry you are. It's absolutely critical. Let me tell you what happens if you will not admit your anger, if you disguise it from yourself, if you deny it, if you hide it. When someone wrongs you, you come after them and here's what you say. You deserve anger, but I'm not angry. Now you know what you're really doing? Here's what's going on. I'm not angry. You're saying, you deserve anger, but I'm above you. You know, I'm too far above you to let you make me mad. But you say, of course, you really are angry because you're just, you're just punishing them. You're making them feel bad. But do you know that even if you're the victim, even if you have been wronged, to even admit you're angry is an act of vulnerability, isn't it? It's an act of weakness. To come to somebody and say, you made me angry, even if they're completely in the wrong, gives the possibility of reconciliation because you're admitting your weakness and then they can admit their weakness. But no, not if you won't admit or own your anger. If you just criticize people and you will not own up to your anger, you not only destroy the ability to reconcile, but meanwhile, you're feeding your level two. You are being angry. You're creating a root of bitterness, but roots become shoots, become trees, become forests. 
And if you will not admit your anger, you will be utterly controlled by it. The second thing you have to do besides admitting your anger is analyze it. And what do I mean by analyze? Well, uh, we've already talked about this, but it's absolutely critical. Notice the second last uh, couplet. Do not say, quote, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. Now, who's this person talking to? Do not say, say to who? That's self-talk. And here's the implication of this verse. What makes you angry is not what's happened to you, but what you tell yourself about what's happened to you. What makes you angry is not what you've lost, but what you say to yourself, that means. See, your anger comes from what you believe, not from what people are doing to you. You've got to know that. Whenever you get angry, say, what is this big thing that's so important to me that I'm defending? Almost immediately, if you do this analysis, you'll immediately be embarrassed because almost many, many times the thing you're defending is your ego, your pride, your self-esteem. If I'm in a, this happens to me all the time, if, if I'm running into a restaurant, I only have 20 minutes to eat, and the waitress is slow, and I'm getting so mad, stop, stop, analyze, what is this big thing I'm defending? Remember I said anger is defending something you love. What is it that you love so much? Well, here's what I love so much. I didn't plan enough time in the day to have enough time to eat. And so if I happen to get served and out of there in 20 minutes, then I won't look foolish to everybody else. But the fact is, I'm afraid of how I'm going to look. I'm afraid it's going to come out that I really didn't plan my day very well. And therefore, I'm mad at her. But I'm, what am I defending? I'm defending my ego. I'm defending me. There's a place in the book of Jeremiah. There's a, there's a place where God says, seekest thou great things for thyself. Seek them not. Use that on yourself in times like that. By the way, it only for me, it only works in King James English. But it does. Because what you do is, what you're doing is you're ordering your love in a way. You're saying, look, at, I, I, why do I love that so much? Why is that so important that I look bad, that I don't look bad? That people realize, okay, I'm late. The reason I'm late was I didn't leave enough time. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Egg on my face. Why am I mad at her? Because I don't want to say that. And what you do, as soon as you say, seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not, your anger gets handleable. But sometimes, to ask that analysis question is a lot more complicated because it can take you to the very roots of your life and your soul. If you say, I'm angry, why am I angry? What is the big thing I'm defending? Sometimes it can take you to the roots of your soul. An example of this, which I used just three weeks ago, but it's still too good an example not to use. You remember I said there were two women I counseled once. They both had teenage sons. They both had husbands who were being lousy fathers. Because of the lousy fathering, the children were, the sons were starting to get in trouble with the law. Both the wives were really mad at their husbands. I counseled them to forgive, and the wife who had the worst husband did, and the wife who didn't have a husband who was really nearly that bad couldn't do it. Why? Because for her, the most important thing in her entire life was her son's love. If her son loved her, then everything was fine. If her son didn't love her, she didn't even want to live. She believed in God, but God's love was an abstract concept. And because this was something she had to have to even live, she, had, she was implacably, irresolvably angry at anything that would come between her and her son's love. She couldn't possibly ever get over her anger. Her anger was going to control her the rest of her life. She would have to destroy anything that got in her way. Why? Until she recognized her disordered love. She couldn't deal with a disordered anger. Until God's love for her was at least as important as her son's love, there was no way she was going to get control of her anger. No way. So you have to admit it. You have to analyze it. But thirdly, you have to transform it. Chapter 15, verse 1, the third proverb. A gentle answer turns away wrath. If someone comes up to you with a harsh word, respond gently. And look at the last two verses. If you have an enemy, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him drink. Now, of all the wisdom literature of the ancient world, this is over the top. There was Egyptian and Sumerian. There was a lot of other parts of the world that had wisdom literature, and they all talked about self-control, but this is beyond self-control. This is not just saying, don't revenge yourself on your enemies. This is saying, save your enemies. I mean, you know, food and drink, these are things you can't live without. Redeem your enemies. Today's proverb of the day in May is Proverbs chapter 19. And since we've been talking about this theme of anger, verse 11 is the verse that I'm going to be discussing today. But before I get into the verse, and I want to kind of preempt it because of how powerful this verse is, the question is, how can you be slow to anger? What actually makes you slow to anger? And when it, the Bible talks about this, for God being slow to anger in the Psalms, constantly describing God slow to anger, slow to anger, what that means is that God is merciful, that he's gracious. God was so slow to anger that he waited until the cross to pour out all of his anger, all of his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. Well, how do we become slow to anger? My mom, whenever my sisters would do something that offended me, I would always run to her and try to get justice. You know, they, they had done something wrong and I felt they needed to be punished then and now. Well, that is not slow to anger. I was very, I wanted it right in that very moment. I wanted my satisfaction. I remember my mom saying these, she said various things during these sort of interactions, but one of the things she would always say is that, that God will ultimately take care of it and I needed to rest in that. Well, that never satisfied me, right? Because I wanted to, I wanted my justification right then and there. But Proverbs 19, verse 11 says that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Ultimately, that was what my mom was teaching me, uh, this proverb that, that their punishment, every sin will be dealt with in that day of judgment. Unfortunately, for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the consequences for our sins are far greater than anyone can comprehend. But for those of us who have put our place, our faith in Jesus Christ, he has borne the punishment. He has borne the punishment for our sins. And as a result, uh, he has overlooked our offense and he has poured out his anger on Jesus. It says here that good sense makes one slow to anger. Obviously, being merciful and gracious is is a crucial component to our lives. But uh, in this context, we have to remember that you can overlook an offense and, and they'll just keep on repeating it over and over again. It doesn't actually help the person if you constantly show grace and mercy to them. So how do we respond and what should we do in this appropriate situation? Well, good sense implies that as we're thinking, as we were hearing from Dr. Keller today, we're thinking and we're realizing just how much we have offended God. Here's the question, and here's what you should be asking. Who is more offended by the sin committed against you? Are you more offended or is God more offended? The answer is obvious. God is always the most offended. And when you are angry, are you angry because you have been offended or are you angry because God has been offended? We haven't placed our appropriate balance there where we need to acknowledge that God is always the one who is most offended. Are we fighting for our kingdom or are we fighting for God's kingdom? Here's what I want to encourage you today. Instead of expending your energy in anger, expend it at the foot of the cross. Deal with the beam in your own eye and after you've done so, then you'll see clearly how to help your neighbor with a speck in their eye. 
If you want to become better at being slow to anger, whenever you find yourself in that situation, spend your time at the foot of the cross. I hope that we've been able to encourage you today, and if we have, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call, 508 362 7070. That's 508 362 7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or be sure to look us up on social media. Don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study here, a proverb a day in May on the subject of anger. As Timothy Keller points us, how Jesus is ultimately the one who dealt with the anger of God. We were angry at God. God didn't withdraw and he didn't come in guns blazing. He went to the cross and on the cross, he absorbed our disordered rage without paying back. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBryan, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, uh, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it.